Good morning, everyone. So we're going to be in Titus 3, uh, 3 through 8. And it's kind of nice that these two lessons, so last week I did verse 1 and 2, and then this week the verses right after. Uh, and the reason this is convenient is these sections really depend on one another. So you'll notice in verse 3, the first word is for. Uh, and really when you see that word, it's giving you the reason why something is being said. Either a reason why a point is being made, or you're getting the underlying reason why you should do something. So verse 2 is really calling us and, and commanding us to exercise what I mentioned last week is a degree of compassion that is entirely unwarranted except through Christ. Meaning there is no natural reason we'll find to do what we're told to do in verse 2, really verse 1 and 2, but especially verse 2. There is no natural reason we're going to have to do what we're told in verse 2, except verse 3 gives us that reason, right? So the motive of verse 2, and uh, verse 1 and 2, is not just instructions of works. These aren't things that we just need to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and do the best we can. Um, but these things we do because of what's been done for us. And really, we are able to do these things uh, fundamentally because it's made possible by what's been done for us. So last week's lesson was very practical. Um, we looked at uh, the applications in six points. A couple of those we lumped together in verse 2. Technically, it's seven applications. Um, but really, we just went one by one through those and just talking about how we can be um, applying those things practically. Whereas this lesson is not so much on what we need to do, but what God has done for us. So another nice balance is last week was what we need to do, and then this week is what God has done. Um, lessons like this can be a little more difficult because it's not quite as tangible, so you'll have to bear with me as we try to give some clarity and tangibility to some of these things God has done. But the idea is the title. It's, it's who we were and what God has done. And again, this, this becomes practical when we realize that we need to take ownership of these things. It's not just that these things have kind of been theoretically done for us and that there are some theoretical truths here, um, but really we need to be taking ownership of every angle of this and thinking about it as personally and consistently as we possibly can. And it starts with verse 3, with who we were. So I'm going to go ahead and reread verses 1 through 8 from what we looked at in the scripture reading, and then we'll start by talking specifically about verse 3 here with who we were. So starting in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These are good and profitable for men. So I'm not going to talk as much in this lesson about verse 8, but it can be overlooked, um, at least for me it's easier to overlook, 
the things that he's telling Titus to speak confidently about, I think it's not just one and two in the applications, you know, we need to do these things. But Titus is to speak confidently about the truths involved in our salvation. Again, that we need to take ownership of these things. And this can be complicated. We can make it complicated. <laughs> and that it can, I think, be hard to accept who we really were. And equally, if not maybe more difficult, it can be hard to accept what God really has done for us. Um, and so we'll try to make sense of that as we go through the lesson. But verse 3, who we were. I think the idea, again, is as we take ownership of our past condition, as we agree with what's said in verse 3, again, not just in theory that, yeah, the Bible says this is who I was, but that we can definitively look back and pinpoint it. That is who I was back then. This is who God has uh, changed me from. This is the condition that I was in that God has changed me from. In verse 3, that me, Bryant, I was once foolish, disobedient, and deceived. I was enslaved. There was no escape to my lusts and my pleasures. And I was spending, wasting my life in malice and envy. And I was despicable. And so your translation might say hateful. The idea in my translation, the reason it says despicable, it's the idea of you are behaving in a way that triggers hate from another person, right? And that's the idea literally of being despicable is you are unworthy of love. And how you are behaving is only worthy of hatred and disregard. We were despicable. Bryant was dis despicable. And I was hateful, dismissive of people, would throw people away quickly, did not understand even how to preserve and build proper relationships. So the question is, do you really see yourself that way? And one of the things that's very helpful about this is God equips us to see ourselves in an honest way by offering us the solution to that problem. <laughs> So God doesn't ask us and invite us to see how bad things were in a way that's just beating us up or leaving us hanging. Because of the solution God offers, that itself reveals the extent of the problem. Another way to say this, Jesus did not die on the cross because we had a minor problem. <laughs> because we were morally already pretty okay. And we just needed Jesus to kind of help us do better. <laughs> That's not why Jesus suffered and died on the cross. Jesus suffered and died because we were ignorant of just how radically extreme the problem of our sin really is. And we needed to be shown that clearly. The idea is we don't see things the way they really are. So another question I want to ask, is God's perspective reliable, especially compared to yours? So we may struggle with saying like, yeah, I know the Bible says I was despicable, and spending my life in hatred, I don't know, I look back, it wasn't that bad. And we may not say that out loud, but that may really be the way we talk ourselves through it as we get away from reading it and get back on with our lives. Is, yeah, that's something the Bible says, but really, when I think about my life, I can't really pinpoint it like that. I can't really see it like that. Do you know better than God? So fundamentally, again, we need to take ownership of this. And we're going to talk about this, this idea of both denial and acceptance. But when we take ownership, it equips me to have compassion on those in the same condition. Remember that first word in verse 3, for we ourselves. And there's a double emphasis there, we ourselves. Think about this. This is the Apostle Paul saying this, we ourselves. And he's talking about himself even among Titus, 
And I think even the Cretans who would be converted, men that Paul would boldly say are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's true about them. But really, that's no different than the Apostle Paul's past either. And the Apostle Paul was someone who in Philippians chapter 3 would say by the standard of the law of Moses, he was blameless. How do you convict someone who by a standard of God's own religious law could truthfully say he was blameless? You could not find an accusation against Paul through the law of Moses. How do you convict that guy? The gospel. Even through, even Paul through the gospel could say realistically, this is who he really was because Jesus reveals our condition better than anything we may think of ourselves more accurately than anything we can think of ourselves. And this equips us to have compassion on others because really when I see others who I see are really in the same condition that I was in, then automatically that helps me have compassion on them. You know, I was lost like that too. I was hateful like that too. I was vulgar like that as well. I was foolish exactly like that. That inherently equips me then to have more compassion. So another thing about this, this could be said of anybody in principle. You know, could you say of a murderer that they were spending their life in hate and envy and they were just completely despicable? You know, could you say of someone who is guilty of rape? Or could you say of someone who is guilty of kidnapping that they were guilty of these things? You absolutely could. You know, when God describes the condition of our sin apart from him, God doesn't weigh it out like, well, there were some people where they needed the gospel, but then you've got that other group of people too where they really needed the gospel, right? God speaks in terms that are equalizing. And if we see people this way, we realize we are no different than the homeless people living under a bridge addicted to drugs or the people we see on the news who are guilty of felonies, people who are guilty of murder. We're in the same boat. We disassociate ourselves from others, but God is trying to connect us to everybody else because when God talks about our sinful condition, Yes, it's more extreme, I think, than maybe how we would define it, but it's true and it's equalizing and it unifies us with others. And when we struggle with denying this, again, whether that's out loud or just in the quiet place of our own heart, it cripples growth and our ability to really understand what I've been given in Christ. So when I was thinking about this idea of denial, um, I looked up kind of some uh, quotes from doctors who work with people who um, are addicted to drugs. I've experienced uh, multiple times having friends and associates uh, who are addicted to drugs who were in denial. Even though the problem was super clear, uh, they're clearly destroying their own life. <laughs> they're clearly making it impossible to have a normal life and any normal relationship, and yet they're in denial. So here's some quotes from, again, this is people of the world. But I think there's there's a, a helpful and very clear connection to how this relates to us spiritually. So I'll ask you to think about it spiritually. Um, so this is with denial. Denial shields an individual from the harsh reality of their condition. And it allows them to persist in harmful behaviors without feeling the need to seek help or make change. Do you see that in verse 3? You know, if I don't accept that I was foolish, and not to some minor measure, again, there's no ceiling to this. If I really embrace by the grace of God, I get more help from God. There's more grace I understand I'm able to receive the more I realize just how foolish I was, then I am more equipped to seek God's help and make radical changes in my life. Here's another quote. 
When one or both parties in a relationship are in denial about the real issue, it creates an impossible impasse, blocking the path to resolution and also growth. You know why people get stuck spiritually in complacency? They just stop growing. It's just like what Jim's led us through in 2 Peter chapter 1. We become blind or short-sighted, having forgotten our purification from our former sins. We forget who we really once were. And then that diminishes our sense of conviction and zeal to continue making change. So denial of this reality, it cripples growth and our ability to see the glory of what we've really been given in Christ. And when that becomes crippled, our ability to have compassion on others becomes crippled as well and everything diminishes from there. But then acceptance fosters healing, transformation, and compassion. So, again, with some quotes here related to this. Um, acceptance doesn't imply resignation. You know, so it's not just like, yeah, that's how things were and whatever. But it instead equips us with the clarity to address issues effectively. That's going to be verse uh, 4 through 7. That God is able to address the issue of our sin effectively. But if we're not working with him, if we are not confessing what he says, and not just in some shallow way, but really, I accept what God says about my condition. When I see the gospel, when I see Jesus' death, everything God says about me is more true than whatever I may think. What that means is, I don't just need to change some things. Everything has to change. It's not just some actions that have to change. My whole way of thinking has to change. Everything. I need a new way of thinking, a new way of living. Nothing is off limits. Acceptance involves recognizing reality in its entirety, embracing both the pleasant and unpleasant aspects. By doing so, it allows us to confront challenges head on, foster personal growth, and build healthier relationships. Acceptance, therefore, is not only the antidote to it, and that is the problem, but also the pathway to resilience and authentic living. Again, this is just a quote from a worldly person thinking about helping someone through something like drug addiction and getting past denial and living in acceptance. Um, but again, the spiritual principle is, if I accept what God says, then there is wisdom in understanding what that leads to. I can confront the challenges, the challenges in overcoming sin more effectively. It fosters healthier personal growth and relationships. I can have more resilience to sin, seeing what it is, seeing the path it leads me down. And it leads to more genuine, authentic living as well. So I want to bring up one parable really quick before the next point. Jesus in Luke chapter 5, there's this really simple parable that I think is very profound. He said, if you have a patch from a new garment, and you've got an old garment that's already shrunk down, and it's got a hole in it. And you take the new patch that's not been shrunk yet in the wash and you sew that on to fix the hole and then you wash that garment now, what's going to happen? And Jesus literally says in the parable, he says, it's going to make that tear worse because the new patch is going to shrink in the wash and the tearing on the fabric is going to widen that hole. And I think the point is this. Jesus did not come to modify our lives. He didn't come to just patch us up here and there. And if that's what we think he's doing, if that's what, he, what we think he's for, even now, even right now, if I've been a Christian for 30 years, 
I don't just need a patch. It's still a radical change, right? We always need to be in a condition where we are ready for radical change. Jesus, if we see him as someone who just came to patch our lives, actually it's going to make our condition a lot worse. Because if we accept what Jesus has done for us and what that really implies, that exclusively implies then this is a complete transformation that's needed, not just a minor adjustment. When I see things this way, it's very ironic in the church, we're surrounded by people we would otherwise despise, which is actually the perfect environment that we really need to heal. <laughs> Think about the Church of the Cretans, right? Again, Paul says, this is a culture of evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and liars. Now, if we're hateful and hating one another, we easily dismiss each other. And now you're in a church where these are saved individuals. And God tells us we need to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We've got to be tolerant and patient. Now you're filled in an environment with people where if I had, if I had things operating on my own initiative and what's more familiar to me, I would have no reason to be in a relationship with these people. And when they frustrate me, I'm going to give up and go away. The church and our relationships in a local body are the very thing we need that makes it so that we can heal over the problem in verse three. God has given us reason to be patient and compassionate, tolerant, to work through problems, not just individually, but with each other. I think we also have to accept not just our condition, but what that means is we're in an environment where we're around people that we would otherwise dismiss and hate and not want to be around. And the only reason we're bound together is because of our mutual faith in Jesus. All right. But God saved us. Now, mind you, in verse 4, he saved us seeing our condition more clearly then we even see it ourselves. When the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Jesus demonstrates how unfathomably unfair God's love is, being based entirely in his own character. I want you to think about the parable in Matthew 18 a parable that I hope we're very familiar with, where there was a servant who owed his master <coughs> 10,000 talents in debt, uh, which this would be like billions of dollars in modern currency. He comes before his master. The master orders him to be thrown into prison until he pays off this impossible debt. The servant falls on his knees, begs him for compassion, and he promises he'll pay it back, which there's just no way that's going to happen, especially in prison. And the master has compassion on him and lets him go and forgives the entire debt. Why would he do that? I think the point of the parable is there is no justifiable reason. It's just because of the master and his character and his compassion. There is no justifiable reason for God to show us the kind of love, kindness, mercy, and compassion that Jesus came into the world to show. This is about God's own character. It's not about any works we've done in righteousness. There's nothing we've done that warrants this kind of response. God's love is inexhaustible. And we so easily underestimate his love because of who we were. You know, go back to verse 3 again. What is more natural? We were hateful, envious, spending our lives in malice, hating one another. Is it going to be easy to understand God's love? And how tempted are we going to be when we sin or we feel like we're falling short or just not having a good day to then get it in our heads that God's attitude towards us 
has now changed or lowered. And God's love is now not as strong because I'm not having as good of a day or I just, I'm not being as righteous today as maybe I feel like I was in the past. And so maybe God's more disappointed in me today. We too quickly underestimate God's love. We need to be super careful to let the truth of what Jesus has shown be true, no matter the ebb and flow of our lives, the ebb and flow of our emotional condition from day to day. God's love is inexhaustibly consistent. Jesus demonstrates that God's love is not based in any merit of any work of righteousness, but is based in his own character, which his faithfulness is a part of that character. So again, this degree of love is transcendent. It's unique to Christ. We're going to be on that faded point for a second. Again, the point of this is, this is a higher level of love than anything we see in the world. It's higher than anything we're going to achieve in our lives personally. It's something that's so easy to underestimate, to undermine, to think far too little of it. So we really have to get into our heads. This degree of love is transcendent, but it is consistent. It is based in the work of Jesus. What he came to definitively show God is, who God is, and who he is at all times. And it's not that he ignores and can't clearly see the reality of how undeserving we are. You know, again, verse three, we may, again, just like our day-to-day struggles of seeing things clearly, you know, maybe at times we're more in tune with verse three. Maybe at other times we're not, and we feel very far from that as if that's not ever been true. God can clearly see how nasty sin is. God can clearly see the consequence of sin. He can see what we can't see. And he still chose to demonstrate through Jesus just how deep his love is for us. And interacting with others is the key to constantly bringing me back to that. You know, as I get frustrated with someone, what should I dwell on? Not on how frustrated I am with them, but on what God does for me. You know, as someone's been unkind to me, treating me badly, what should I dwell on? What should I obsessively replay in my mind after that? What Jesus has done for me. This is the key to building a deeper conviction in these truths. This is the key to growing in compassion and seeing how undeserving I am. Because any slight anyone does against me, how often every day, is God having to deny punishment to show mercy? And how often is he doing that quietly, gladly, consistently with everything we see in Jesus? And so that should just build a sense of awe in me that whatever I might be struggling with, God is doing more. Not only is he doing more, he's already done more towards me. So who am I to withhold that from anybody else when that's already been done and is continuing to be done toward me in ways that far outweigh any little act of mercy that I have to show others. So again, verse five, we stopped with, this is something God did according to mercy. But then he went further than that. He makes us heirs with Christ in the end in verse seven. He saved us ultimately that we may become heirs. And I know this is a mouthful, but I think this is really important to express here. God has given us what's most expensive. You know, there's nothing greater, nothing more costly that God could have done than sending Jesus to die on the cross. God could have sacrificed every planet except Earth, and that wouldn't have been as great a cost as Jesus. 
He could have sacrificed every living person on planet Earth except you. And that still would not have been a greater cost than just sacrificing Jesus himself. God has given what is most expensive. He's also done what's most personal. You know, again, sending Jesus, nothing's more personal than that. And in verse 5, this is really hard to understand, is the Holy Spirit is a more ambiguous person in the Godhead. But for God to send his Spirit, who he's richly poured poured out on us through Jesus, the Spirit of God is something very personal to God. For God to send the Holy Spirit, like sending Jesus, is something as personal as could be done by God himself. And he's exerted the most power. The New Testament teaches the working out of our salvation is the exertion of all of God's power. I would argue Genesis chapter 1 is not an exertion of all of God's power. Bringing Israel out of Egypt is not the exertion of all of God's power. Bringing Israel back from Babylonian exile is not the exertion of God's power. But the New Testament teaches that the, that the growth of our salvation, the working out of our salvation, is the exertion of all of God's power. And he's taken the greatest risks. Again, for God to give us all of this, when we've done nothing to prove ourselves, we haven't proven ourselves trustworthy just because we believe the gospel and have chosen to be baptized. You know, just because we have the conviction to repent doesn't mean we've proven ourselves trustworthy. This is risky. Christians fall away often after coming to the knowledge of the truth and oftentimes very quickly after hearing the truth and obeying it very quickly, they turn back to their past way. This is incredibly risky for God to do things this way. He's given what's most expensive. He's done what's most personal. He's exerted the most power. And he's taken the greatest risk. And he's done this all for each and every one of us in the most personal and intimate way. So in verse 5, the latter part of the verse tells us how he did this. These are some difficult statements that I think we need to be super careful to appreciate. He did this through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And I've gone back and forth on saying what I'm about to say this week. (laughs) Do you think it might be helpful to say, and I just ask your patience in hearing me say this, if this sounds weird, talk to me after, and maybe that puts your guard up as I'm about to say this, which is okay. But I've known a lot of well-meaning brethren who I would categorize as conservative teachers who have done a lot of work, unfortunately, to undermine the work of the Spirit and to basically say the Spirit is exclusively responsible for the delivering of the Word, the pages of our Bible, and the written Word. That's the work of the Spirit. Anything else you believe about the Spirit, you might be going off the deep end and becoming Pentecostal. And I'll just be frank with you, that stuff really frustrates me. I think the Bible really teaches clearly that there is a working of the Spirit that is consistent with the Word, but it's not just that the Spirit delivered the truth and nothing else. And I want to look at these passages. And again, I want to argue, this is really important. If the Bible says this is what the Spirit does, we've got to be super careful that just because it's intangible, maybe it doesn't make the most sense of it, sense to us. Maybe we have a hard time nailing down exactly what that looks like. Again, we've got to be super careful that we don't undermine what the Bible is actually clearly saying just because we don't understand it and because there's maybe Pentecostals or other false groups that we recognize take these things too far. Turn to Isaiah 32. I want to walk you through some passages. And 
I hope you don't find this boring. But we're going to be walking through these passages that I think talk about what God is going to do one day. This very special thing that he is going to do one day that was not given beforehand in the way it's been given to us. And I think this will give us a clear picture in what's going on here. Isaiah 32, 13 through 17. And again, this is the idea of the pouring out of the spirit, this washing of regeneration and renewing. Isaiah 32, 13 through 17. For the land of my people, well, okay, before I read this, there's something else I wanted to bring up in my notes here. Um, these passages illustrate the, the spiritual work of the spirit in physically tangible ways. I think that's important to say before we read this. These passages look forward to the spiritual reality of what the spirit will do, but it's expressed in very physically tangible ways. Uh, as oftentimes prophecy works, looking forward to the new covenant. Verse 15, 13, rather. For the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up, indeed, against all the joyful houses of the exultant city, because the, pl- the palace has been abandoned and the populated cities forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a joy for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful orchard, and the fruitful orchard is counted as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness will live in the fruitful orchard. And the work of righteousness will be peace and the service of righteousness, quietness and security forever. The idea of regeneration is an idea of creating new life. Either the idea of new birth, which the washing of regeneration, I think, in big part points to baptism, the work that God has done to give new life in baptism. But I think there's something in principle that goes beyond only baptism. Regeneration is an organic term. And you see that here where you have this barren, abandoned wasteland. And then what's going to happen in verse 15? The spirit is poured out and this completely barren wasteland becomes this fruitful field. And then verse 16 and 17, justice is going to dwell there. Righteousness will thrive in this orchard. And the work of righteousness is going to be peace, the service of righteousness, quietness, and security forever. God is going to bring new life to something that's dead. He's going to restore life to something that was dead. Look at uh, Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 4. It says, For I will pour out water on thirsty ground and streams on the dry land. I will pour out my spirit on your seed and my blessing on your offspring. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. Your translation will say the Lord's. And this one will call on the name of Jacob. And this one will write on his hand, belonging to Yahweh. And will name Israel's name with honor. Again, verse 3, you have this barren land. And when the spirit is poured out on it, this land becomes fruitful, even with, you know, again, the imagery here. People springing up out of this barren land that's now a fruitful place. And it's going to be like this place by streams of water. And these people are going to be belonging to the Lord. And they're going to call on Israel's name, call on God's name, and name the name of Israel with honor. Look at Ezekiel 36. This is one of my favorite passages for the nature of uh, the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. That's really important, I think, to kind of have in mind. 
Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. And again, I think about this as a very landmark passage that's helpful to keep in mind. Verse 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. So in verse 27, what is going to equip someone to properly obey the Lord in the sense where they're given the spirit of God? It's going to be the fact that they're given a new heart and a new spirit, that God is going to put his spirit in us, and this will be the platform for this new people to be obedient. Look at chapter 37, verses 11 through 14. In 37, there's a beautiful, um, a beautiful scene, like a prophetic scene, where Ezekiel is standing in the midst of all these dry bones. And God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones and tell them to live. So all these bones kind of rattle and lift up and attach to each other. Then muscle and sinews and tendons grow and skin grows on them. And it turns into this gigantic army, this large army. And then eventually in, in verse 11, as God is kind of talking to Ezekiel about the point of this, that this will be something done to his own people, Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. You know, what has God done for us? when we were saved, when we were baptized with that washing of regeneration, we were dead in our sins. It's like our lives were a dried up, barren wasteland. But what Titus chapter 3 is saying is when we were saved and redeemed, God washed us with the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. He gave us new life. And how is that possible? It's by the Holy Spirit that was given to us in Christ Jesus. John seven thirty seven through 39. This will be the last one that's not on the board. John 7, verse 37 through 39. John seven thirty seven through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, this can be hard to quantify, like in a graph, or mathematically make this make sense completely. But I think there's a clear idea here. That what we've been given, what God has done for us, is something that before Jesus came was not given in that way. Something that wasn't even possible as it's been made possible because of what Jesus has done. That the prophets were looking forward to a time when God would pour out his spirit on mankind and it would regenerate and renew. And we would be brought back to life and we would be rebuilding, renewing, renovating And this would be a spiritual work that the Messiah was going to make possible in Jesus and John 7 when he would be glorified. The Spirit would then be given and made available. Our condition demonstrates a great need. And God sees it as an opportunity 
to use his resources to meet that need. In Titus 3 verse 5, the Spirit is fulfilling what is our greatest need in relation to God. What we need in relation to God is regeneration. (laughs) That there's things in our lives that sin has destroyed and made dead. Regeneration means that God is able to create new life, things that were once dead, damaged, or destroyed. And when we really realize in verse 3 the kind of people that we were and how helpless we are, we realize we desperately need God to use his resources to regenerate what is dead, damaged, or destroyed. We need him to renew. So it's not just a one-time thing. We need a renovation. Just like a construction worker with a uh, dilapidated house that's no longer safe to live in will need to take out the old damaged things and replace them with new things consistently, we need God to work on us, to renovate our thoughts, renovate our behaviors, to renew us consistently. God can renew things that are dilapidated and decayed and need to be restored. We've got to see our need for it and see ourselves the way he sees it. And God is striving to share the full glory of Christ with each one of us. This is where this is all going. So in verse 7, we're justified by his grace. But this leads somewhere. So the idea of salvation isn't just that we're made innocent. It's not just that we're trying to become morally acceptable or have acceptable social relationships with each other. What is God's mission? What is this all about? You know, this Old Testament prophecy that one day, God is going to do something more, not just give more information, but he's going to do something that hasn't been done before. He's going to do something greater than anything done before. He's going to have a people that are going to be equipped to be more like him than any people before. Why? What does that do? Romans 8, 16 through 17. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if if children... Heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. The mission is that we be as like Jesus as we can possibly be. And again, the degree of grace in this, I've put on the board, do you realize the degree of grace in this? That the position Jesus has, God is bringing us into that position. The glory Jesus has God is sharing that glory with us. And this isn't something we can see with our eyes. This is something that requires faith to believe, I was completely dead. I was despicable, foolish, deceived, hateful, hating other people. And yet this is what God has done. And this is what he's trying to do with me. Is he is trying to unify me with Jesus in every way possible by his power, love, and patience. I want to end the lesson looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and the last two verses. And this is a chapter that similarly is talking about the glory of the new covenant, the distinction of the new covenant that we have access to the spirit of God. Again, not just that we're given new information and further clarity on God's plan, but that there's something given to us that makes a degree of righteousness possible that was not possible before a degree of hope that we can have that could never be given before, but now is made possible in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Do you realize the grace involved in this? I think we can safely say Satan does not want us to see that grace. He doesn't want us to remember that grace. You know, in the world, you have people who will try to advocate saying self-affirming affirmations in the mirror every morning before you start your day to encourage yourself. If you do that, fine. But I think we need to affirm these things more. You know, that Satan does not want us to feel like we are on stable ground with God. You know, he wants it to be an ebb and flow where I'm having a worse day. Emotionally, I'm struggling more. I don't feel like I'm doing as good as the other days. And then we forget the glory of what God has consistently and stably shown us with stability that is true about what he's done for us and what that means about our salvation. God is working in all his power, with all his patience, with the depths of his compassion to make us fellow heirs with Christ. If we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. I hope this has been encouraging. I hope it puts into your mind how amazing God's work is, how hard it can be to understand, even accept, but how important it is to dwell on it and to affirm these things that God has done so we don't forget them and let Satan take these things away from us. I'd like to say a prayer asking God to help us to be emboldened and encouraged on these things. And after that prayer, if there's any need uh, that anyone needs to bring forward, you can bring that forward as we stand and sing after the prayer.